Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Simmons Under the Surface. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, class of 2017 if you didn't know. This is the second episode ever of this series, and I have to say, it's a pretty special one related to a really cool thing that happened this past year. When Simmons announced the new Gwen Eiffel College of Media, Arts, and Humanities, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation gave the college a grant of $250,000, which led to Simmons connecting with one of our guests for this podcast, Lashara Bunting, the Director of Journalism at the Foundation. She's this incredible journalist who led the Digital Strategic Initiative at the New York Times, so she's pretty knowledgeable about the topics we covered in this episode. In October, she came to visit Simmons to see the new Eiffel Wing, among other things, and I was lucky enough to be able to get her in the studio for this episode. Not only that, I was also able to bring in two professors, Laura Saunders and Rachel Gansborskin. Last spring, they convened librarians, journalists, tech professionals, and others for this No News Symposium, which addressed misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and ways to fight against it. Together, they had this really rich discussion on the intersection of librarianship and journalism. It's more likely than you think. Building trust in the media, engaging with information, intellectual freedom, diversity in journalism and reporting, and so much more. If you're feeling frustrated by how easy it is to disseminate false information nowadays and the lack of trust in media as a result, this episode is definitely for you. There is certainly hope out there because these women are doing a lot of work around these issues. So without further ado, here is Lashara, Laura, and Rachel. My name is Laura Saunders. I'm an associate professor in the School of Library and Information Science here at Simmons University. And um, I teach in a number of different areas, all around user services in library and information science. So uh, working directly with the public. And a lot of that has to do with some of the things we're going to be talking about here, because a lot of what librarians do when they're interacting with their patrons is to try and help them make sense of the information that they're accessing and in particular to try and evaluate that information so that they can understand what is credible, what is trustworthy, um, what they can and should rely on and how to use it. So some of the things that I teach around those areas include um, user instruction and a class on intellectual freedom and censorship. And in terms of more of my research, um, in the last year, I worked directly with Rachel Gansborskin, who will be introducing herself in a moment. Um, we ran a symposium in the spring where we brought together what we were calling allied professionals, which included journalists, librarians, educators, and people from the tech sector to talk about the challenges of mis- and disinformation, because all of these professions are dealing with those challenges, um, but they are not necessarily always working together um, you know, sometimes there are just there are silos, there are barriers. So we were talking about how we can sort of leverage each other's expertise and resources in order to reach more people and help more people build their news literacy skills. And um, I think we're going to try to continue to work on this in different ways. Um, one of the things that I want to do, that I'm trying to do in the near future, is um, I applied for a grant to do some research into what those barriers to collaboration are so that we can start to think about how we can break some of those barriers down and maybe create a framework for collaboration and then train professionals and students, our, our emerging professionals, in how to work across these disciplines more effectively. That's great. Hi, uh, my name is Lashara Bunting. I am Director of Journalism at Knight Foundation. 
Uh, Knight Foundation is a, a private uh, foundation who that has its roots in journalism. The Knight Brothers, you know, they accumulated their um, wealth through journalism and <clears throat> really a lot of the the great work that they that they did over the years we we still see and benefit from. Um, my focus uh, as director of journalism is really on talent and learning, talent and development. And it's the people who are going to get journalism to where it needs to be. So when we talk about uh, digital transformation, when we talk about supporting local news, uh, you know, those are very high level concepts, right? But it's the people who are going to get us to where we need to be. So for my job, my focus is um, uh, digital transformation. I'm doing a lot around journalism education, uh, training and development, leadership, and diversity, which is something um, that I'm personally very passionate about. You know, as we talk about trust uh, in the media, Local media, um, as we've we've seen in, in a lot of our um, uh, polling and research from Gallup that we've done with Gallup, it's local media that people really trust, right? Um, not necessarily the national outlets. And from our work, we think about how can we best support local news to get to where it needs to be within uh, their digital transformation um, to help build up that trust. So uh, that, that's a lot of the focus of my work at night. Um, previously, before I uh, joined Knight, I was at the New York Times for, for 15 years. So my background is, is very much in journalism and transformation. So interesting. Um, my name is uh, Rachel Gans Foreskin, and I'm a senior lecturer here in the communications department at the Glen Eiffel College of Media, Arts, and Humanities at Simmons University. And uh, I do a bunch of things in our department. And so I, I come at the idea of um, misinformation and disinformation from a couple of different uh, angles. Certainly the work I did with Laura Saunders last year where we were really trying to figure out um, how uh, librarians and journalists and other professionals are, are thinking about information and thinking about this problem and what are the kinds of um, solutions and strategies in the different silos how do we bring them together. And one of the great things uh, about that experience was I was able to bring my students um, into it, our, our undergraduate students. We had a upper level seminar and one of the things that's come out of that is I have three fantastic undergrads doing an independent study right now trying to develop um, a game that teaches some of these um, strategies for uh, information literacy, working with some of the people that um, we met at the symposium, um, like at Stony Brook, who were doing some of this interesting work and translating that work into an interactive um, computer game. Um, and they're thinking for high school students or, or college students as well. And I, I think in terms of my own interest, I, I think a lot about um, what I what think of as the, the pollution of the information environment. And if, you know, as someone who's concerned about climate change, um, I, and I, I think we have a, you know, a limited amount of time to address that, I, I think we're in the same space with uh, the pollution of our information environment. And we have to develop strategies, and they're going to be radical 
um, they're going to need to be in, and how we rethink this, and how we um, rebuild trust and a commitment to um, an identification of a, a set of facts we can all agree on, even if we disagree about their meaning. Um, and there are days I am quite hopeful. Those are the days I, I interact with my students and see their passion. And there are days um, where if I happen to turn on cable news, I am much less optimistic. Okay, thank you for that. Lashara, I wanted to start with you. You mentioned a digital transformation. I wanted to know what you mean by that and what does that look like? So when we talk about digital transformation, right, and I'll speak to it specifically, I think, from the local level, because I think that is um, where the, the greatest urgency is when we talk about uh, digital transformation, you know, in every sector in our lives, um, Digital, digital has disrupted everything, right? Um, everything from um, how you buy glasses, right, to how you bank. Um, and so we as an industry, um, and I'm saying we because, you know, I still think my, of myself as a journalist, um, have to stay not only current but stay ahead of the game. So a lot of um, local news organizations have been impacted by um, falling ad revenue. And digital ad revenue is just not, does not make as much as print revenue. Um, so how do you replace that? You still have to pay for journalists who are going to, uh, you know, to, to report on these important issues. We see state house coverage, for example, um, you know, has been receding over the years across the country. So when we talk about digital transformation, it's we think about cultural transformation. How is your newsroom set up? Um, is it set up to support the digital age? Is it set up to be nimble? Um, are your journalists fully equipped for for that future? Do they have all the tools, the training, the the, the knowledge to to get to where they need to be? And then you also have to think about the storytelling, right? It's never just enough to write a story and slap it up on the internet. You have to think about how are people engaging with this story? What is the best way to tell the story? And for each story, it's different. It could be audio clips. It could be a static graphic. It could be a dynamic graphic. It could um, you know, be GIFs. It could be... Um, you know, you're bringing in reader voices. It could be any number of things, but I think for every story that you tell, you have to think about what's the best way to tell the story. And are we telling the right stories? Are we giving the public what it needs? And with the digital transformation, you're able to get a really good read on what people like, what they don't like, what they're interested in, and maybe what they're not so interested in. And so you're able to sort of fine tune your coverage, you know, if you're tuned into what the readers want, you're able to fine tune your coverage to offer what they, the best of what they, of what they want. Um, so when I talk about digital transformation, it's really a holistic sort of view of how do we improve and engage and elevate our work in the digital age. That's, I think that's fantastic. And it's funny, as you were talking so many connections were kind of going off in my head. Um, even because last night, for instance, I was at a, um, I was at a trustee's reception last night, and 
we were, you know, we were sitting in round tables, mixed tables of administration trustees and faculty and talking about things that are happening at Simmons. And at the end of the night, what one of the trustees said really struck me, which was that she sits in presentations all the time where she sees lots of data and lots of, you know, information that is, you know, very helpful for her to understand the big picture. But she said what really resonates are the stories. And she said what's really going to bring people in and keep them here are the stories. And I think that... Um, as you said, it's also about thinking not just of how we create the stories in terms of like storyline and story arc, but all of the tools that are at our disposal. And one of the places where I see dovetails across professions here is that the digital is, I mean, it has absolutely usurped and disrupted everything, and yet there is still a digital divide too. And so while it's so important for many of our um, professions like journalists and, and even librarians to be able to create and, and disseminate information digitally, not all of our um, communities can access it that way. And so um, it's really great, you know, one of the roles that libraries can play, and in particular public libraries, is to be that conduit and to provide the access tools to the, um, to the different communities that might not have them otherwise. Because I'm always a little disheartened when I hear people say, and I do to this day, um, you know, well, we, we don't need this or that because it's all online. It just, you know, it, it seems like it's such an important thing to remind people that even it's not all online to begin with, but even if it were, um, it, the access is still not equitable. So it's interesting, Knight Foundation really was founded on these principles of informed and engaged communities, right? So what you're talking about is the informed, all that stuff is there, uh, but it's that engaged piece that I think we have to do a lot more work around, especially when we're talking about trust, mm -hmm. right? It's not just enough to, to, to read and know what's on the internet, but how are you taking that knowledge and engaging with the community or even engaging with, the, um, with that knowledge? Yeah, I, I think something I worry about when I, I move into sort of my more like academic uh, thinking about this is that you know you talked about um, how how are we you know giving people information that they're interested in how do we speak to them those stories that resonate um, and I I think of it as that sort of spinach and ice cream question there are things that we want like ice cream and there are things that we need like spinach. Um, and, and it's a real challenge as storytellers to find a way to, to tell, uh, you know, to, to, to make spinach ice cream. It's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> um, but but how, do, how do we do that? Because maybe that story at the State House, um, it's, it takes some work, it takes some cognitive energy uh, to understand, and there may not be um, as much interest in that. And we know that what people are interested in, the things that get shared, on the internet and and of course if you're a news station and you want those clicks and you want that revenue you want things that people are paying attention to and talking about and sharing and and a way to do that is fear is emotion and that those things which get you the clicks that get you the interest aren't really the things that build trust long term and that it's where sort of misinformation can kind of go in that we end up with that quick, easy, you know, that's an easy way to understand things. And, you know, I think anything of importance in the world right now is probably not really easy to understand. And so 
it, it's a challenge for journalists. How do you tell complex stories? And it's, I think, a challenge for educators. How do we train people to be interested in complicated things? And, and it's the responsibility of citizens. You know, it, it is that, that challenge for um, citizens to figure out how uh, we resist that and, and who want more. Um, so it's, it really is that kind of massive kind of deployment of, of intellectual and creative resources and financial resources to make this happen. But actually that, I think brings up a follow-up question to me because like you said, Rachel, there's, there's two levels here, right? One is, is educating the public, but the other one is educating the professionals who are going to be communicating this information to the public. And I, w I wanted to ask you, Lashara, given all the research that Knight Foundation has done in general and then with your particular focus on journalism, do you have thoughts for, uh, for the educators in the room <laughs> <laughs> about what do our emerging professionals in these fields need to know? Wow, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big question. You know, I think anyone who is entering journalism or even in it now, whether they've been in it for five years or 25 years, really need to understand that the public believes that journalism is important, right? Our Gallup research shows that. But the research also shows that, you know, they, they can't name, many of them cannot name what they call an objective news source. Now, when a journalist hears that, that's really, that, you know, that can feel very shocking to them. Um, and what that tells me, right, is that journalists need to better understand what the reality is on the ground. It's easy for all of us to be in our bubbles. And when you're a journalist, you're around other journalists. You're around people who consume media in, in big ways and largely trust it. And so I would say anyone in the business coming new to the business, just sort of understand the landscape that we're in and what does that mean for the work that you're trying to do. I believe very strongly in, in accuracy and, and doing really, really great work, great reporting, great writing, being transparent to the readers, being fully engaged to the readers. And um, this could just be me being very hopeful and naive, but I really want to believe that those principles uh, still matter um, and will do what it can to restore that trust. Um, with media and audiences. I, th I think that these are, um, I, I think there is that, you know, that thirst for information you can trust, but it runs up against, you know, that, that definition of, you know, like when people are like, information I can trust is information I, I already agree with. That's right. Um, and That's I think right. that, like, that, that human, um, that human problem. Uh, and I wonder, you know, you, you talked about local news, uh, and certainly at our uh, symposium, we kept coming back to the local, that this is about trust. Um, but, you know, the news this week, I think about, um, you know, the manipulation of uh, news on Facebook uh, to really foment genocide uh, in Myanmar. And, and when you have government entities, um, uh, you know, actually state actors uh, weaponizing um, this, as, how do, how do we combat that? And I, I wonder, um, you know, your thoughts on that as this additional challenge to, to something we're already, you know, we're already pretty much struggling with. <laughs> well, you know, I think, look, I think that's why when we talk about an opportunity to, re to rebuild trust, it really has to be on the local level. Um, 
all of these other um, events in the media feel very outsider, I think, for people. And if you're, you know, if you can walk down your, you know, local Whole Foods or grocery store and run into that journalist who you, you know, you are more familiar with, you tend to trust them. Or maybe you went to high school with them, or maybe their kid is in your same soccer league. Um, I think that this engagement piece, this audience engagement piece, which some news organizations have really begun to do really well, and some are just sort of getting more comfortable with, is really going to be crucial. Whether it looks like, you know, news organizations, many are building out events businesses, um, and that's a great way to be able to make additional revenue, right, to make up for the loss in, in ad revenue, but it's really an amazing way for that, those journalists and the public to come together. You know, and some newspapers are inviting or news organizations are inviting people into their news meetings, into their newsrooms. Like, how can we dispel how that story came to be? And sometimes you're, you'll see some of that. You, you know, I've seen a lot of this in the last year um, where news organizations are explaining our reporting process. Right. In fact, I heard about that. I heard a very specific story about that at the Night Media Forum this past spring. Mm-hmm. That Frontline um, was saying that they are making all of their their transcripts from all of their interviews publicly accessible, unedited versions, so that listeners can they can see the story, but then they can go back to the primary document and say, okay, you know, what was edited out and how was it edited, and do I you know, do I agree with their take on the story? And I, I think that transparency could make a huge difference. But I also agree with what both of you have said about the importance of the local community. And I think, as you said, Lashara, it, part of it is that if you can know someone personally, even, even on a sort of distant level, like just we say hi to each other as we pass on the street or whatever, it, it does make you feel a little bit of trust. I think also for a lot of people, the national news and the international news, it gets so overwhelming. And I think that there is, you know, rightly or wrongly, a sense sometimes that you can't impact that, you can't make change there. And while I, I don't necessarily agree with that, I do think that there's more of a feeling that you can make a change on your local level. And so I think that, you know, those the issue of disappearing local news is such a huge issue for that. And again, not to keep bringing it back to libraries, but I think, again, this is a place where I see <laughs> those connections. First of all, because libraries have, in general, um, a high sense of public trust. People do tend to feel like they can trust the information they get from libraries. And so that's something that you know a library could help leverage you know, and use their trust to say, okay, and here's, here are the sources that we're telling you, we've, we've vetted as experts. But I think the other part of it is that public libraries in particular, they are local resources as well. They're funded by local tax dollars. They serve a very specific community. And so again, if they work with that local news community, you're, you really are creating a, a sort of a network and to sort of surround that community uh, of people that you can trust and you can get to know. On the flip side, I also think the librarians have a lot to learn from the journalists. And I know Rachel and I have talked about this before, but despite the high levels of public trust in libraries, I'm not sure that libraries are always really good at telling their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that people have a, this sort of vague sense of like, yes, we like libraries and yes, we trust them, but they don't necessarily really know 
everything that the library does and can do. So I think that there's there's a really that there's a great place again for some connection there to help sort of build that narrative around the libraries. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think that I come to this local space and I, I I tend to think actually of my own life in this and you know I, I see a I think there's a real challenge with everyone's lives now being so busy that you know how much time is there for the local. So, you know, when you talk about shopping online, you know, how many times is, is it so much easier to buy something online than have to go to a store and, of course, retail is, you know, show that. But those were places where you interacted with people, where you talked to the shopkeeper, you talked to other people in line. And, and so those moments of knowing the people around you, opportunities for that seem to be uh, slipping away. And everyone's lives are so busy, we work such long hours, so that there's a real way that I, I think there are lots of cultural things that go here that are outside of just information and go to mm -hmm. the structure of our society and a breakdown of trust because there's a breakdown in contact. So. You know, these are larger questions. Maybe you know the next uh, the next group we bring together brings in you know people from corporate America and brings in social workers and 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 brings in things to say. How do we shift a culture that will encourage interaction with you know they don't have to be your good friends. Maybe they're the like on the ground equivalent of those Facebook friends. You know, and and so can we reestablish a physical public square? Um, that, that, I think, is, is something we have to be thinking about as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, my colleagues at Knight Foundation who work in our um, communities and national initiatives from, for um, a handful of the cities, this is part of their strategy, right? Like building those public spaces. Um, because what you're saying is very much important. Um, you know, how do we leverage the beauty of our city to bring people together to help facilitate those conversations? Uh, you know, I think when I think about the work that Knight's doing, it's, it's really really sometimes so amazing where it's like, wow, we, it's a very holistic view, absolutely, of informed and engaged communities. Um, so, so I could not agree more. And I think that news organizations in those local areas and those communities can utilize those existing spaces mm -hmm. to bring those people together. It, it, you know, to bring it back to that transformation piece you know, so many news organizations are just really struggling to do what they can. And so it's hard to, to see out and see those possibilities and really understand, you know, how that is important to the work that they're doing now. But I, but I think through uh, the work that we're doing and, and, um, and other organizations are doing to shift culture and to shift uh, how people work in this digital age, you know, we're going to get to that place where engaging with the public is a crucial part of the journalism. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, there is, there is a struggle, right? and, and many newsrooms are under-resourced and underfunded, <laughs> to put it mildly, right? And so I think, you know, another thing that came up at the symposium that Rachel and I ran and that I think is, you know, it's a recurring theme is 
how do we help how do we help get the public to the space where they value their news not just in sort of a general moral sense but in an economic sense right um, that they understand that it takes money to bring them really good news and and help them to sort of want to support that yeah that gets to what your your comment about libraries I think that you know journalism has not done a great job of telling its story right to tell what it ironically right <laughs> ironically um, yes and it's you know we're uh, we're we're good at putting out the news but not telling what it really truly takes to put out that news how much does it cost this is why uh, you know it's important to buy that digital subscription because that pays for XYZ so I think you know like libraries journalists just have to you know, again, going back to that transparency piece. Yeah, I, I, I think about that for, for journalism uh, as well, that there's been sort of a spiral. So if you have fewer resources, you know, you're just going to do that clickbait story because that's, that's easy and it gets there. And the problem is that the, the more surface the information you put out there, the less central it feels to people's lives. And so when they're looking at their budget and they're trying to decide what they can cut, they say, well, not really getting a lot from this and so the you know the subscription doesn't get renewed and if we you know aren't providing a, a product that is meaningful in people's lives we can't expect them to pay for it right. and so that takes funding uh, and, it, and it's a it's a vicious cycle and and so you know and, and again you, you saw these trends anyways uh, with news before the internet comes in and really disrupts it. But once the internet is there and you know, you're giving away content, then that's in, that, in your mind, well that's free. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it was never free. Never and free. Never <laughs> free. Uh, so, so how do we change that and how people think about it? And again, I, I just agree, it's, it's this local yeah. thing. The, you know, as you're talking about that, it, it, it makes me think about this notion of experimentation, right? And the best newsrooms have created environments where that is welcome and it's rewarded. And so if we think about that state house story, right, that that maybe naturally may not get a lot of traffic, if I'm an editor in that newsroom, I might say, you know, let's think of a different way to tell this. Let's, you know, this is sort of the, 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 regular state house story that we normally do we tell it the same way what's a different way that we can do this and let's just try it and so i think trying those 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 little things just over and over and over again and by the way doing trying it and then getting the feedback from readers Again, it always comes back to like, let's just actually talk to our readers and see what they want. But I think that gets at your point of how to sort of get out of that vicious cycle of clickbait and, and, um, and headlines or even just gravitating toward those stories that, that you, know, you know readers want, want to read and will read. You know, they will read, you know, that s story, you know, on text law and how it impacts them but how are you writing it are you writing in a way that's very dry and boring or are you presenting it in a way where wow I can actually take this thing and use it as a resource this is very useful for me 
um, wow, it's broken down in a way that I actually now understand that. And I, and I think the burden and a lot of, you know, these sort of things we've talked about, the burden really is on the news organizations and the journalists to do it differently, to do it right, to be more explanatory. Uh, again, you know, you just need the training and the resources and the money to be able to shift uh, to that. Yeah, I, I think it, it connects to something that uh, came up a lot in the, in the work that Laura and I were doing at, at the symposium. People talking about, well, how do we actually train our communities to be journalists? So, you know, it, I, I, as you were talking about the, you know, the safe house example, well, maybe that's a challenge to your viewers. How do you tell this story? How would you do it? And, and if we're thinking about the disruptive power of new technology, think about all of the podcasts. You know, we're, we're in this one now, but um, you don't need the nice studio at Simmons mm -hmm. to, to do a podcast, to do a good podcast. So there's so much experimentation going out there. How do we leverage that creativity? that's out in, in the public, and, and certainly the social science research around millennials, is that they want to be producing mm -hmm. things and not just passive recipients. So what do, what do we do with that? That's, that's an opportunity. So there's this great project that I don't know if you guys know about, um, the Documenters Project out of Chicago. And this was one of our uh, prototype night prototype winners around trust media and democracy. We put out an open call last year for, you know, what are your ideas around misinformation and how to combat that? And the Documenters Project brings in citizens in Chicago who are interested. They have to raise their hand and say, yes, I really want to be a part of this process. They go through a training, you know, how to report, how to listen, how to, and they go to public meetings right? They go to these public meetings and report on them. And there's a, there's a way that they do it. It's not the traditional way that you were sort of thinking of. They go to it, they do a couple quotes, they write up a story. Um, they have a distinct way of reporting on them. But the thing that's interesting is they are engaging actual people in the process who otherwise would not be. And then they're covering these public meetings that just have not been covered, you know, for a long time, if ever. And news organizations can then take those notes that the documenters have done and use that for their reporting. These people get paid. So it's, you know, this is not a, a purely volunteer thing because we have to be realistic about, about what it takes to do these sorts of things. But that's a, a, a really great project that we're watching and seeing how it develops as a way to engage, you know, the community and get, getting them to increase their news literacy, right? But actually providing this useful tool for the, the local news organizations to be able to know what's going on in these different spaces. The, I, I just have to plug my students here again. The, the game that they're putting together, you can play in different ways. You can play as librarian uh, as you go through, or you could play as a journalist. Um, you know, how is, what are the different strategies that these different fields have and sort of being able to, to use those. So, so really understanding there are these experts, there are these different methodologies, let's, let's use them. Um, but it is that different approach and they were like, yeah, it's a game. Um, so uh, I love that. That sounds like fun. I want to play that game. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> 
hear that? Mackenzie, Bella, <laughs> Haley. <laughs>
Let's talk about disinformation. And, and let's talk about that broadly and widely and get people to understand the difference, whether it's misinformation, which is incorrect information versus disinformation, you know, information that deliberately has been put out there to, to persuade, to, you know, damage to, to whatever you want to call it, something. And so I think the more that we can educate people on sort of those two concepts and what that looks like and those examples and in their, their Facebook feed and those things they clicked on and shared, the more we can do that, the more we can start to chip away at, at this issue. It's um, my very hopeful answer. <laughs> so I want to know if you, any of you have any thoughts around balancing uh, intellectual freedom, freedom of speech with uh, censorship. Because I know that's, I think, an issue the public is grappling with. We want to give people a voice, and that's easier than ever in this age. Uh, but even we're having trouble defining what a lie is and what a fact is. So what are your thoughts on that? Is this something that we can maybe work towards a consensus on you know, what's fair about you know, free speech? I'm wearing my First Amendment t-shirt right now. You can't see it because it's, it's a podcast, but I, I assure you I'm wearing it. And, um, you know, I, I, I think for better or worse, we operate in uh, the context of the First Amendment, which means that you really can't uh, regulate speech in this way. There are, are very limited things that we can, can actually stop by, you know, First Amendment precedent. And... We really want, I, I mean, I think that on the left and the right, there is a desire to silence people who we, we think are doing harm, but we believe that our judgment, whatever side we're on, is the right one. And that's a problem, because it, once you give someone the power to do that, that someone has that power. And so it is a responsibility that we have to be able to speak, and we should take that seriously, and we have a responsibility as consumers of speech to evaluate. And the whole idea is this marketplace of ideas that the truth wins out in debate. And that we should not run from that, but actually engage. And that's hard. But citizenship was never supposed to be easy. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. I think that, that should be a meme. <laughs> Someone Yay. can take care of that. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I would like to second a, a few of Rachel's points. And I think one is, you know, as someone who teaches a class on intellectual freedom and censorship, I think that style, it, as much as some speech is, is incredibly problematic, I think silencing that speech is not necessarily the answer. And I think that Part of the reason it's not the answer is because it doesn't get rid of anything. It's what I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is that those ideas were right there under the surface and trying to silence it doesn't make it go away. So I think by surfacing it, as horrible as it is sometimes, it does allow for this, this discussion where hopefully we can arrive at, at the truth which is also a problematic term, of course, but hopefully we can arrive at, at that truth. I do think some of it, though, comes back to this, this question that's sort of underpinning our whole discussion today about news literacy, 
because part of what our our public needs is the tools and the skills to be able to assess everything that they're hearing. So it's not necessarily trying to suppress or censor one side or the other, but making sure that everybody who's engaged in that conversation can really sort of intellectually, cognitively weigh the sides and understand it and engage in the conversation. I mean, then engaging in it in a civil way is a whole nother, another part of that question. But I, you know, I do worry sometimes about sort of the chilling effect on intellectual freedom when we start to try and, and pull back from, from free speech and things like that. I mean, there are definitely examples from, from my world, from the library world of, you know, libraries having, you know, law enforcement come in and subpoena people's reading records so that they can try and guess, you know, and predict who's going to be problematic. And, you know, this is from the UK, but there was an example um, about two years ago of a student in a library at Oxford who was pulled aside by library security and questioned for several hours because he was reading books on Islam. And, you know, and he was a, a darker skinned man with a big beard who was a master's student in Islamic studies. But, you know, there was a trigger there for somebody that this was, this was trouble. And so my fear is that it, when we try to censor and suppress, it often ends up being the people that should, should not be censored and suppressed. That's not the right way. That's not how I want to say it. But I think it, it often ends up having the wrong effect. And then those people who have who really want to learn and understand are afraid to pursue that knowledge because of the, the backlash. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the First Amendment, really, I remember as a kid reading that and thinking, wow, this is like, uh, this is America. This is, this is where I live. This is, this is what... Um, this is what it's all about. And then I've, I've always wanted to, I always wanted to be a journalist since I was a child. And so to me, the, those are two very heavily linked things that I believe very strongly in. As I hear you both talk, it really, you know, we really seem to come back to this issue of um, engagement, right? But civil engagement. It is, it is tough when you are a person of color and you see, as I am um, myself, a black woman, and you see some of this language that's hard to, to, to take in and, and, uh, and to um, uh, sometimes it feels like you're assaulted with it. Um, but, but that notion of, of uh, free speech and press freedom is important and how do you weigh that and I think for um, for many of us you know we're that's something that we grapple with because it is so important but when you think of the person on the other end as well you know what what impact does that have on them and what's the toll that it takes um, so it's a tough you know I I, I I love the First Amendment and I think that it's uh, crucial for everything that we do but it's an interesting conversation that I think we have to have even just about that. Well, I also wonder, and I don't know if I'm framing this exactly correctly, but one of the things that we talk about in some of my classes when we talk about the First Amendment is the difference between a positive right and a negative right. Mm -hmm. So in other words, is the right to free speech just something that, it, that nobody is supposed to be getting, getting in your way? Or is it something where you're supposed to have some support? 
And I wonder if somewhere in this conversation about these allied professionals, if there's a way of kind of trying to balance the scales a little bit. So it's not to take speech away from anybody, but it's to help those people who have not been able to have their voice heard and giving them more of a platform and finding ways to amplify it. And I mean, social media has certainly done that to some extent, but maybe through some, some avenues that have a little bit more gravity to them. Yeah, I, I think this is again one of these things where there's this like double-edged sword. So the platform that allows for say black Twitter to emerge where you have voices of people of color who have been marginalized and not included in mainstream media, you know, coming and saying these are important things that some of the most important stories that come out of Black Lives Matter or, or form Black Lives Matter um, come from bubbling up and not through sort of you know mainstream media. That that technology that's really important. Um, it's also the technology that allows for the proliferation of alt-right groups <laughs> to find like-minded people. So it, it's a, a tough thing how you know to say, well, I really want to elevate these voices, mm -hmm. but I want to get rid of this other part that allows those marginalized voices, which have been marginalized for a reason, you know, like the alt the alt-right to, to to silence them. And it's hard to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think to actually something where you talked about of these voices were always there. And you know, I talked about being in the um, you know the American context of the First Amendment, we can't regulate. But if you look in Europe, there are not the same rules. Um, there are strict restrictions on um, language about Nazism and, uh, in, in Germany, uh, for instance. That has not prevented the rise of, of right-wing groups in Germany. So I, I certainly know uh, scholars um, and activists who say, well, we should be looking at what goes on in, in Germany and Canada and France, and we should be trying that. I don't think it works. If there were a legal solution and this all went away, I'd be a lot more receptive to it. I don't think it works. So it, it, it's again, we've got to do it as people and we do that through trust. We do that building trust, building relationships, having hard conversations with people we disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, and I personally know how hard that is, especially when somebody is saying something hateful mm -hmm. to you. Um, I'm not sure the, the ethics of it, the morals of it, that we ask people to have those conversations. I'm not often interested in having them myself, but I don't know how, as a society how we get better mm -hmm. if we can't find the way to do that. Yeah, it's important to have those spaces that allow for that conversation and for the people around the table to be open and not defensive about what's being said or shared or asked. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about universities, my, you know, my time in college is a, felt like very much a incubator for that. You know, the, the conversations that we had with, with people who were unlike us, you know, that, that was some of the best years of my life and the richest, uh, some of the richest conversations. And, you know, how can we sort of duplicate that? How can we create that environment out in the community and during this time when everything seems so polarized? 
of a lot of it is created on college campuses <laughs> now too. How do exactly, exactly? I mean, fear, you know, fear is is behind a lot of this, right? And um, and you know, what can the media do to dispel that? And what can the media do to in, honestly acknowledge that? I think I as both of you were talking, I felt like that was a big part of the question. It kind of came back to something you said earlier, Rachel, about the the balance and sort of sometimes that need to have balance and then sometimes that, that when the balance is actually um, reflects an inaccuracy, right? And makes it seem like everything is equal and equally true. But I do sort of feel like there's a question here as in terms of, you know, both in terms of the, the different voices, right? How or should and how should the media balance those voices? Because even, even the voices that we don't really want to amplify, there's a question of don't we have to at least acknowledge them somehow in, in order to inform people that this, this discussion is happening? And, and I think also to the, to the point that you were making, Lashara, that we have to figure out some way you know, I think that question of fear is also such a big one. And, and just like with the voices, it's how do we acknowledge the fear is there without amplifying it to a point where people start to feel paralyzed? Like, there's nothing I can do, so I might as well not try. Mm-hmm. And it's really um, incumbent on the news organizations to, you know, ask themselves, what are the stories we're not telling? You know, what are what are the voices that are out there that we have not mentioned and we are not amplifying? And do it before it becomes a thing, right? right. Do it before it comes too late. Mm-hmm. I think that, that there's a responsibility, surely, for news organizations to step up in that way. I, I think one, one other thing I, I'd love to hear in the voices that get amplified, I think when we, we talk about that, we think a lot of the sort of, who are the people on the edges? And I, it's an easy journalistic narrative. Say, this side says this, this side says that, go to extremes. There's a vast majority of Americans who just aren't paying attention, who have other things on their minds. Who are they? Who are the people who are actually moderates Mm -hmm. um, in temperament, in politics, and you know, food choice, and all of these things who don't fit into a neat camp? And maybe if we heard more of those voices, we'd start saying, oh, well, maybe I kind of fit in that space. And that might be a space where we can talk to each other. So again, it is about representation. Who are we? And, and we're a lot of things. And it's not just the edges, and it's not just the people with really strong beliefs. Nuance, right? It comes back to nuance, right? And then journalism, there's not always a lot of nuance in context. We certainly could do a better job of that, but but it comes back to that. We are all complex individuals, and so how do we reflect that? Thank you to Lashara Bunting, Laura Saunders, and Rachel Gins-Boriskin for joining me on this episode of Simmons Under the Surface. Also, thank you to Simmons University Radio for letting us record in their studio. Sims Under the Surface is a production of the Office of Advancement. We'll see you next month.